that's going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. The triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Rinita Malhotra-Hora. Greece seeks a $59 billion bailout in an effort to stay in the Eurozone. Stocks are revived by the China rebound and futures jump on Greece's proposal. And Hong Kong, hostage to the China route, makes stocks too cheap to ignore. Two-thirds of economists surveyed by Bloomberg are saying that the China stock slump will affect GDP this quarter. More on markets this morning with Rabobank's Michael Every. And our guest after that is the International Federation of Accountants board member Richard Petty, who will tell us about Hong Kong's competitiveness. Mark Conan, the CEO of Cafe Conning Asset Management, is back as guest host today. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Mark, is a China stock route over? Probably not, unfortunately. I think the increased volatility we've seen as investors have really depended on um, authority action to come in and try and stem the tide and prop the market up. It just increases the amount of uncertainty, and I think the authorities have risked their own credibility in the process. So probably we've got more volatility, which means more testing of the downside. A little bit up, a little bit down, and a whole lot of fun in the making. What about Hong Kong? Is it uh, true that it's uh, you know che- too cheap to ignore right now, and now's a good time to buy? Well, I think Hong Kong's interesting because whereas the measures now being taken on the mainland really restrict the amount of uh, trading on the market as um, sort of institutions are, are encouraged to come in um, and buy the market and, uh, of course, uh, stakeholders are unable to sell stocks. It basically locks up a lot of the market um, and and risks the credibility of the market overall, the mechanism. Whereas in Hong Kong, of course, the market uh, is is uh, functioning normally. And uh, if we continue to see a downward drift, uh, these stocks become cheaper and cheaper and uh, investors internationally will look up will look to pick up bargains all right well uh, let's look at greece uh, first um the greek government has agreed on a reform program and has submitted to its creditors in the hope of securing a third bailout the program is thought to include tax rises and pension changes the proposals will be discussed at a full eu summit on sunday chaired by the president of the european council donald tusk and on the mainland share prices have recovered after this week's dramatic falls the stock exchange in shanghai registered its biggest gain for six years. The rise came after the latest intervention by the government. Investors who hold more than 5% of of a listed company are now banned from selling their stock for the next six months. The BBC's Martin Patience has visited a branch of the stock exchange in Beijing. At this Beijing trading centre, there are no sharp suits or MBAs. A large chunk of China's investor class is decidedly grey. Grannies and grandpas pouring their savings into stocks in the hope of a good return. But in recent weeks, many have been on a losing streak, with their investments taking a hammering. Some argue that it's a lack of sophistication that's led the stock market to plunge, that people here are stampeding to the exits in a herd-like mentality. 
The government's pulling out all the stops to end the slide, but the grannies and grandpas here say those measures are actually adding to the confusion and panic in the market. One of them is 67-year-old Mr. Pung, who's been investing for almost two decades. Sorry, order. Whenever anything goes wrong, the government tries to control it. They should have a stable policy and stick to it. They change too much, and then the market's forced to react. It's hard to know what's going on. And that's the big risk for the government here, that the panic in the stock market will spill over into the wider economy, which is already slowing. Many analysts think that won't happen, that what we're actually seeing here is a correction in the market. But if it does happen, then the effects of this crash will be felt right around the world. The question that analysts are asking is whether the Chinese stock tumble will have a ripple effect on other markets. Here's Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Mike Regan dissecting a note from RBC's chief U.S. market strategist, Jonathan Golub. Explain what Jonathan Golub said in his note. So basically, he looks at the 10 main sectors of the S&P 500 and how they correlate to Chinese stocks. And what he found was some of it is sort of intuitive. For example, uh, raw material companies, technology companies and industrial companies appear to be the most heavily correlated to the Chinese market. And that makes sense because China is obviously it's a big manufacturing economy that consumes a lot of raw materials. Uh, They're buying a lot of technology, consumer and, you know, manufacturing. And the other one, industrial, you know, obviously your bulldozers and stuff like that. Uh, On the flip side, the the less correlated uh, sectors, utilities, healthcare, that kind of makes sense too. These are more domestic, uh, U.S.-focused sectors. The one thing uh, that is sort of interesting to point out is that, that, you know, he did find these correlations, but they're not super strong. For example, you know, 11% correlation with uh, raw materials. I, I, That's it. Right. So, uh, and this is a correlation with the Shanghai Composite. Right. So does right. that beg the question that are U.S. stocks more correlated to the Chinese economy, per se, rather than the stock market? Well, they've, they're becoming more correlated to the stock market. Uh, Joe Scioli on our team actually ran some numbers. He, he's uh, working on a story. I, w- I won't give too many details away. but <laughs> Right, right. He found uh, that the S&P 500 and the Shanghai Composite are the most correlated they've been since 2013. Still, not a super strong correlation, but it is rising. It's, it's clear that we are sort of moving a little bit more uh, in lockstep with China, although very far from 100% correlation. That's uh, But as you as you point out, the, the real question is how much damage will this stock market crash do to the actual Chinese economy, which yeah. arguably the, U, the U.S. market could be a lot more heavily correlated to that. And I should point out that Bank of America had a pretty pessimistic note out that came earlier today saying that the economic growth rate will be lower. Uh, they're still looking for a lot of trickle down, very pessimistic as we wind up seeing a pass through to the real economy, as if we don't really see the faith anymore in the government put if the government can't stop the slide. Uh, That's what a lot of people are talking about. Uh, Part of what fed this rally in Chinese stocks was people had faith in the government. They were very supportive of this equity market and the economy in general that, you know, China's growth was uh, above 14 percent per year in 2007. It's now down, you know, the forecasts are for below 7% for this year. So, you know, they have obviously been doing a lot to bolster that growth. And the question is, well, if, if they can't keep the stock market propped up the way they had wanted to, does it make you sort of lose faith in that? Not, you, know, you know, the Bernanke put is what we would call it, or the Greenspan put we call it in, in the U.S., but the People's Bank of China put is also now in, in question. 
Steve Ratner is the chairman of Willett Advisors, which also, interestingly enough, manages the personal and philanthropic assets of Mike Bloomberg. And uh, Ratner told Bloomberg that he is actually quite bullish on China. First of all, let's just talk about the stock market for one second. It's down. You guys all talk about how much it's down. Still up 70 percent over a year ago. The Chinese have handled this terribly. They allowed the bubble to occur by allowing more margin debt, by opening the so-called Shanghai-Hong Kong Connect. They made every mistake you can make. And now they make, they're making it on the other side by having the government buying stocks and all this stuff. So they've handled it terribly. But I was struck by a, uh, a comment that Jack Williams, the head of the San Francisco Fed, made in a speech, which very much paralleled my own thinking, where he said, I went to China recently thinking housing bubbles, corruption, export-led economy, all these problems. And I left after talking to a lot of people thinking, you know, this economy is still doing pretty well relative to uh, any other place in the world. And that's how I feel about China. Shares on Wall Street rose a quarter of a percent in response to yesterday's strong recovery in the Chinese stock markets. The main index in Shanghai ended up almost 6% after... um, uh, excuse me, after a seesaw session. And locally, the Hang Seng rebounded 3.8% from Wednesday's 5.8% fall. The Dow Jones closed up 33 points or 9.19% to 17,548. The S&P 500 gained four points or 0.23% to 2,051. And the NASDAQ added 12 points or a quarter of a percent to 4,922. Shares Shares of mainland brokerage Haitong have paired uh, early steep losses during Hong Kong trading after the firm announced a 21.6 billion yuan share buyback. The company's shares slumped 17% during Hong Kong trading before recovering to end down 0.6%. Its shares traded in Shanghai jumped by the 10% daily limit. The buyback plan has been seen as the company's contribution to the government efforts to stem the route. And other brokerages also also revealed similar buyback plans. Citic Securities proposed to raise $1 billion to buy back its own shares there. They rose 18% after losing 32% in the past five trading sessions. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Michael Every, who is the head of Asia Research at Rabobank. Good morning, Michael. Michael, we heard a clip from Bloomberg earlier talking about people's faith in the government put. Has the government intervention in China finally paid off? I don't think so. I think this is more of a dead cat bounce. But actually, we haven't even got the whole market, so it isn't even a whole dead cat. It's parts of a dead cat bouncing. Uh, I mean, if you close down 70% of the market and make it clear that anyone caught, you know, seen short selling or selling aggressively is going to be arrested, it's not surprising that you can manage to force the market to go up quite sharply just for one day. You know, let's step back on all these controls. Let's unfreeze all these shares and let's see what people really think about where pricing should be. So uh, financial intermediation has surged 16% from a year earlier in the first quarter. Is China in a whatever-it-takes kind of mode, kind of like Mario Draghi a few years ago? Oh, absolutely. But I think China's always in whatever it takes kind of mode. Uh, You know, the primary goal is to keep the economy growing at a rate that they've determined is necessary, which is 7%, which is rather arbitrary, but it's a goal that they've got. Uh, And continually, they'll do whatever they can to try and get there, regardless of what side effects that creates or what other problems it creates. That's why we had this equity bubble in the first place, because as the housing bubble was popping, they needed to create a new bubble to try and maintain growth of seven. 
this is now popping. One wonders what they'll do next, but I'm sure they'll come up with something. And again, that will have uh, massive side effects in other areas. So when you say, you know, regardless of the other side effects, but China has a lot at stake. I mean, if this does turn into social unrest, uh, that's a huge problem for the Chinese government, is it not? Well, it is. I mean, I don't like to talk about social unrest as an issue because I'm in financial markets. Uh, but perhaps, you know, one shouldn't have allowed an equity bubble to happen in the first place if one was worried about what the downside would look like. And by the way, I direct that not just at the PBOC, but at every central bank around the world. There are far too many of them from Japan to Europe to the U.S., who are more than happy to see asset prices inflate and don't really have a bad word while it's happening. But as soon as they start to deflate again, panic and step in and do whatever's necessary to try and keep them inflated. Uh, it doesn't work in the long run. As I said, it creates terrible side effects. But it really shows that we live in rigged markets at the moment. It's a one-way street. When things go up, everyone's happy. When things go down, they're not allowed to. The authorities step in and try and stop it. Michael, I have a question in from a listener. He is asking, um, did China try quantitative easing? Now, they didn't try quantitative easing in the traditional sense, but can you help uh, explain exactly what they did? Well, it's not, as you said, it's not QE in the traditional sense, but they are pumping extra liquidity into the economy uh, to try and support the stock market. Basically, the PBOC is giving a large amount of cash to key brokers, and key brokers are using that to buy shares. It's actually no different in a way than what happens with QE, except that that normally happens with government bonds. Um, the issue, of course, is who are they going to sell them onto when they have to repay the PBOC? So temporarily, you've stabilized things by pumping this liquidity into the market. But it's, you know, money that's been created de novo out of thin air by the central bank. You have to have someone else who's going to come in with real money and say, we will now buy that share off of you for this real money, preferably at a higher price, in order for that, that entity to then give the money back to the PBOC. Otherwise, it's money printing to basically say, we think this particular share of this company should be trading at this particular price which in some respects, in some of the uh, particular shares trading on the Shanghai market, is still a price-to-equity ratio of 70, 80, 90, 100. So it's a bureaucrat making that arbitrary decision. So when you say it has to be somebody else coming in to the, buy that share, are you talking about domestic buyers or are you talking about foreign buyers or both? Uh, either. Anyone who thinks, yeah, you know what, I can get it. This, this particular share is trading at a PE of 90. I think that's good value, which, by the way, shows you don't, under, don't understand what a PE ratio is. Um, and I'm prepared to pay you a little bit more uh, and actually buy it off you, at which point then, of course, the recipient of that cash can give it back to the PBOC. But if no one steps in, if no one says, yeah, you know what, this PE ratio of 90 looks attractive to me, then basically that PBOC liquidity stays in the system and effectively the PBOC ha has propped up that buying and the, the, the particular broker who bought the share is stuck with it. All right, I have a question from a listener who says, what about the China ETFs? Will they have a problem with their holdings? Um, that's more of a technical question. I think you have to look at what the overall direction of the market is. Um, at the moment, some of the, uh, some of the implications in terms of things like ETFs are, are rather hazy when you've got so much of the market in lockdown. Also, uh, Michael, do you think that uh, China's stock route will affect GDP this quarter? Not this quarter. We've, well, we saw that June car sales were particularly particularly poor, so we might just catch some of that, uh, you know, the, uh, the trailing edge of that. But I think if this continues to stay the way it is or deteriorates, and I still think there's a lot of argument that it will deteriorate further, we'll see more of an impact into Q3 and Q4. Mark, what do you think about all of this? Well, I think the uh, authorities now find themselves in quite a, quite a difficult uh, situation. I think uh, 
the uh, policy to try and sort of equitise the economy to some extent and wallpaper over some of the cracks and allow it to move ahead with reforms, particularly reforming the state-owned enterprise sector. Um, that's sort of fallen in a heap now. And it's a, a question in our minds, really, is whether or not the authorities, the government, can move ahead with its uh, rather aggressive reform programme. Does this throw a spanner in the works and have bigger implications for the real economy. I'd be interested in Michael's views on that. Michael? Um, to be honest with you, I'm cynical. I've never believed they were going to push ahead with this reform programme because what the reform programme actually means is that you have to have a, a V-shape in the economy. You're going to have to have a wrenching downturn uh, as basically uh, capital starts, get starts to get allocated on a market basis, which means many of these SOEs, which are either making low profits or not enough profits or are inefficient, would have to go to the wall or restructure. And politically, that's never been something China wants to see. Then, of course, if they did do that, as the experience in other countries has shown, you have the up leg of the V and you have a much leaner, fitter, more market-based economy, which is what China needs in the long run going forward. But if you're not prepared to take the pain, you don't get any of the gain. And I think everything we've seen, both in the equity bubble that's been blown and the very, very strong response to the fact that bubble is now popping, really indicates that the primary goal is to maintain the commanding heights of the economy for the SOEs and to basically maintain order, stability, a high level of growth in the short term. Don't worry about what the long term says. Michael, you said uh, yesterday on Bloomberg that uh, you could expect perhaps to see the Shanghai Composite going uh, down to perhaps the 2500 level or so where it was before last summer. Are you still going by that? On a fundamentals basis, absolutely that's where we should go back to because this is all an artificial bubble. Um, there is nothing that's happening in terms of the earning front. Uh, or the real economy that says that the P ratio on these firms, particularly with earnings dipping, should suddenly have gone through the roof. You know, anything, say, if anything, it would say the opposite should have happened. So, yes, from a fundamental basis, we go back there. If they're going to close down 70%, 80% of the market, make it illegal to sell to certain people and basically say, you know, selling is not patriotic, so that no one, everyone's afraid to actually accurately price these things, then temporarily, yeah, the market can stay around where it is at the moment. But it's not really a true market, if that's the case. If it's a true market, it would be a 2,500. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Every, and he is the head of Asia Research at Rabobank. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down 0.04% to 19,847. Australia's ASX uh, 200 index is up 0.15% to 5,464. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, half a percent to 2,036. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.10 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 121.68 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 91 cents and one US dollar and 53 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about competitiveness in Hong Kong right after this. By the end of this year, only construction waste will be deposited at the Southeast New Territories landfill in Chengquan O. The government has made other waste facilities available to receive other types of waste. To prepare for the new arrangement, waste collectors and property management should plan alternative routes and resolve contractual matters in advance. For inquiries, please contact the Environmental Protection Department at 2872-1727. Come on, y'all!
The time is now 8.22 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Well, according to the China Institute of City Competitiveness, Hong Kong's comprehensive competitiveness among the country's provincial-level regions fell five places to number 12, while Guangdong, Jiangsu and the Shandong provinces topped the ranking. Although it still topped uh, the per capita wealth competitiveness ranking and was named the most internationally influential city of China has Hong Kong lost its edge. Let's bring in International Federation of Accountants board member Richard Petty. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Richard, why has Hong Kong lost its competitiveness or why has it dropped even lower than Jiangsu and Shandong? Well, that makes for a great headline, doesn't it? But heaven help us when governments start managing economies according to newspaper headlines. Indeed. But uh, I guess the question would be, what is it that Hong Kong has done wrong, you know, that it had to drop five places? Well, I don't know that it has actually dropped. And I don't know that the method that was applied was necessarily all that robust. In fact, if one looks at the other surveys uh, globally, which are quite defensible in terms of both a mix of objective and subjective measures like the World Economic Forum and the IMD and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and so on, which do the broad measures of competitiveness, Hong Kong performs remarkably well. In fact, in the most recent World Economic Forum survey, Hong Kong maintained its ranking at seventh globally. What kind of measures uh, usually go into surveys like this? Uh, what are the parameters that are measured uh, you know, when they look at competitiveness? Good question. Uh, Different variables and many different metrics, many uh, variables. One has to be very careful when interpreting the rankings because the idiosyncratic features of an economy are captured by some measures and not by by others. Um, But various uh, indices compile the uh, reports in different ways and it's a mix of subjective and objective data. I'd suggest to you that competitiveness equals productivity and that's quite a commonly held view and that Hong Kong is actually quite a productive economy if one measures it the way that I would suggest to you it should be measured which is the output uh, per employment uh, per worker of employment age and we define that as being age 15 to 64 then Hong Kong does remarkably well. I have a listener here who is asking why are expats moving from Hong Kong to Singapore? Well, there's always been a flow of expats between those two countries and throughout the region, uh, and different people make their own individual choices to move for for various reasons. Uh, There are clear pressures that Hong Kong has and has felt, and people have taken account of those for their individual circumstances to move. I guess an obvious one would be international school places. Uh, And there are, you know, I chair one of the chambers of commerce here. It's another hat I wear, and. We often find uh, stories of, anecdotally anyway, of senior managers going to some place or another based on uh, school places for children rather than anything more, more substantive. But if, if one looks at a whole range of measures, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that expats are coming to Hong Kong. They're still coming to Hong Kong in large numbers because Hong Kong is actually in pretty good shape. It has unique advantages. It's part of China. Others aren't. Singapore isn't. Uh, Hong Kong can leverage China in ways for a greater China play in ways that Singapore can't. Hong Kong is part of the Greater Pearl River Delta, which is the most dynamic economic region uh, in the world. We have rule of law, we have English language, we have freedom of the press, low tax. Uh, We're a great international hub. 
uh, and we've got overall pretty good infrastructure and infrastructure that's improving with the third runway and the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge. That's great. Um, Mark, what do you think about all of this? Would you like to weigh in? Yeah, I think there are um, some structural issues here in Hong Kong which do need to be addressed um, by the government in terms of affordability of housing as um, the labour market remains extremely tight and that's um, an ongoing issue to make sure that we remain competitive, that when companies come and set up and look to use Hong Kong as a base for the region, that there's um, sufficient supply of skilled labour. Uh, I wonder what, what Richard's views of that are and how that, how that filters into some of these measures that, that he's looking at. Richard? Uh, I, I agree. Mercer comes out with a cost survey annually, and it's it's quite a robust uh, survey. And Hong Kong never does particularly well in that survey for expatriate labour in particular because of the uh, cost of housing. And one has to be very mindful of the attractiveness for mobile international investment and understand also that highly skilled professionals uh, are mobile and can work in different locations. So we certainly want to ensure that we continue to attract uh, professionals to Hong Kong. But there are, there are various ways in which that's, that's offset. I guess taxes is an offset. Uh, it's the case that uh, how you define the cost of living and measure it uh, is also uh, subject to a wide variety of influences and measures. People can make choices about where they live and how they live. Uh, I grew up in Australia, for example. It's not uncommon in Australia for people to live 40 minutes an hour out of the CBD and travel in. It's less common uh, in Hong Kong for professionals to do that, and I'm not suggesting they should. But Thanks, uh, Richard. Unfortunately, we are out of time now, but thanks for joining us this morning. That is Richard Petty, and he is a board member at the International Federation of Accountants. Well, uh, here we are almost at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down a quarter of a percent to 19,807. Australia's ASX 200 index is up six-tenths of a percent to 5,400. 491 and Sol's Cosby up three tenths of a percent to 2034. Gold currently stands at $1,159 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $58.50. Well, here we are at the end of a pretty volatile week. Uh, Mark, uh, you see that there is more volatility coming. You know, one thing uh, Michael Every didn't want to talk about was social unrest. Uh, how much of a bigger problem do you think this could be? Well, sort of standing on a knife edge, really, the authorities, you've got 90 million individual investors in the stock market in mainland China. There's been a huge pickup in the number of accounts, the number of uh, individuals investing in the market. There's a huge amount of uh, borrowing which has accompanied that. And even though margins borrowing has come down, what we've seen is as the stock market has fallen, that level of borrowing as a percentage of the free float has actually increased. So maybe the level of borrowing uh, in, in, in RMB terms has come, down, has come down, but as a percentage it's actually increased, which is quite worrying. So that, yeah, there, there is a possibility for um, uh, disgruntled investors to, to vent their, their uh, displeasure and frustration at the authorities. And I think um, as a result, the authorities will continue Continue to try and uh, stabilize the market and shore it up. Thank you, Mark. Uh, that's Mark Conan. He is the CEO of Cathay Conning Asset Management. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for this week's Money for Nothing. And a big thank you, of course, to Sandra Lamb, our producer. The weather forecast today will be cloudy with squally showers and a few thunderstorms. The temperature right now is 26 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 93%. <laughs> 
Time for the half hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The Greek government has agreed on its economic reform program and submitted its proposals to its European creditors. The government is also expected to seek a vote of parliamentary approval for the measures in Athens tonight. The BBC's Chris Morris is in Brussels. Greece has now sent what it says is a comprehensive set of reform proposals to its creditor institutions. But it may not be easy for many government supporters to stomach, because Athens will have to accept many of the measures that the Greek people rejected in last Sunday's referendum, and more besides. In all, that could mean tax rises and spending cuts worth more than 12 billion euros. But in return, the government expects to get much more from the rest of the Eurozone. It wants a third bailout and measures to promote economic growth. The government in Britain is advising British tourists and residents in Tunisia to leave. The Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, says another terrorist attack is highly likely. 30 British citizens were among 38 people shot dead in the resort of Seuss 12 days ago. Tunisia has stepped up security following the attack. Novena Couture, a freelance journalist in Tunis, says there's dismay over Britain's travel advice. People are obviously gutted. They're devastated because they are aware of the impact that this is going to have on the tourism industry. But not just on tourism, they're worried about the impact on foreign investment, 